0: You're right in front of me. We're gonna be making a lot of eye contact. <laughs> Hope that's okay. <laughs> Jeannie was teacher's pet last week. Maybe Jordan will be this week. <laughs> um, but why don't we just open with prayer and we're gonna have a little bit of worship um, again, just to allow us to rest back in the Lord and come out of the hustle and bustle and all the craziness that we were a part of all day long. I'm sure. So let's just pray. God, we want to welcome you here tonight. God, we thank you that. You are alive, that you are a living God. You are a God that longs for a relationship and connection with us. And God, tonight we just give in to that love and we choose to surrender to you and to come into your presence and to receive from you tonight. God, we recognize that we don't have it all together and that there is no way that we can do it all without you. And so, God, we just want to rest in your presence and let you be our strength tonight. God, as we come to your word, we ask that you would speak to us and that you would use these as tools to better equip us to know you in a deep and rich way. Lord, we love you and we just want you here with us. We want to learn from you and grow together. We want to fall more in love with you, to experience love from you and to be transformed. So, Lord, would you come and would you be with us? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're going to do a little review on what we went over last week, and especially because we have some newbies with us tonight, so I want to make sure you feel caught up on what we went over last week. Um, And so last week we talked about um, the purpose of this class and that we have three goals with it, but I'll just do a quick background on, on how we came into this class right now. So, um, when the cu- when the quarantine hit in March of last year, uh, YWAM, who has been traditionally in a solely in-person class training program, began to offer trainings online accessible to people around the world. Um, and it's really one of the first times they've begun to do this. And so, I opted to, opted to take their Bible school online during the quarantine and uh, it took nine months to do and it was so crazy, so good. Um, then I graduated in January and they offered me to do an outreach program. And to do the outreach, you then have to teach the Bible for eight weeks. So that's why we're here (laughs) you guys are my guinea pigs thank you for being (laughs) willing vessels (laughs) um but hopefully we get to pass on the joy of discovering God's word together and we just get to have fun and dig deep together so we talked about three goals um and so the first goal we talked about was to discover God's word these are in your notes from last week so I'm just doing a quick review of those But number one was to discover God's word. Number two was to find a lifelong love of God's word, that we would fall deeply in love with him and his word. Um, And from that place that we would then experience a transformed life. Right. We don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. We want to look in the word as though it were a mirror and be able to see ourselves looking back at us when we read it. Um, We also talked about 11 different ways to study the Bible. Do you guys remember any of those 11 ways? Don't peek. No cheating. No cheating. (laughs) Huh? No, no, no. Different ways to study it. Meditation. Yeah, a character study, a book study, word study. (laughs) Was it the Lecto Divino one? Yeah. What'd you say? Chronologically, yeah, yeah. There is a ton of ways, and there's no wrong way to study the Bible. Um, Jeannie said the best thing, and I quoted you in my review online. I don't know if you heard me, but I was like, Miss Jeannie said this in class last week, and it was so smart. What did you say about the the worst kind of Bible study? Is what? The worst Bible is one that's not. Yeah, right. That's right. So the. the kind of is that's right, and so the best thing we can do is to read it, right? So we did talk about three common mistakes that we happen to make when we come to the Bible. Um, The first one is we fail to open it. We fail to read it. We fail to study it. And that is so easily correctable if we read it, right? Um, And we read a statistic last week that only 10% of Christians have read their Bible. And so we have the opportunity to change that. We have the opportunity to read it, to fall in love with it, and encourage others to also read it and fall in love with it. The second common mistake we talked about that we make often is that we fail to study the Bible in context. And we defined being in context as, what was the word you said first? Literary. Literary, yeah. So understand the literary context of the Bible. So perhaps you've heard or or haven't, but each book of the Bible has its own genre. It has its own literary form. It has its own author and its own intended audience. And so if we fail to recognize that, we might think Paul is writing, dear Du Boisians in 2021, thou art suffering from mask quarantined awfulness. And then we have to go, wait a minute, this was not inscribed to us. This was written to the Galatians in the first century of Palestine culture, you know, and so they were experiencing things that were vastly different from what we're currently experiencing. So the second thing we recognize in context is historical background. We want to know what was the culture, what was the time period, who was their ruler, and what kind of lifestyle did they have. You know, we you know our our society changes vastly between if we have a Republican president or a liberal president, right? And so. Imagine back then if they had a godly czar or an ungodly czar. Were they persecuting Christians? Were they killing them left and right? Or was Christianity on the rise in the nation? And so all those kinds of things go into why the author of the Bible wrote it, and to whom and for what purposes. So we can easily begin to correct this common mistake of failing to study it in context by doing just a little bit of research. Um, and if you have one of those big thumping Bibles, like I know some of y'all do, baby got Bible, um, it will often give you resources in here, letting you know who wrote it and when, and a little bit of background on, on what was happening there, you know, and they might have maps that you can check out. Um, And if you don't, then there's Bible dictionaries and Bible encyclopedias available online for free, all kinds of goodies. So our third common mistake that we often make when we come to study the Bible is we fail to recognize our own assumptions and prejudices, right? We often come with this view that, okay, I know what I know and I know it's right. (laughs) I've read this and I know exactly what it means. (laughs) And if we're not doing that, we know someone who has, right? Right. And so we have to come to the word of God with a humble spirit. We want to come with a teachable spirit where we're asking the Lord to reveal himself to us. Because even if we have read the same passage over and over again and do have very deep understanding of it, that is very correct. There's always more to learn because the, the spirit of God is infinite and we are very finite. So there is always more for us to learn. So those are our three common mistakes that we took a look at last week that we make. Um, And then we talked about the the methods that we can employ to really um, correct these common mistakes. Um, And that is where the inductive Bible study comes in that we're going to be studying out together um, over the next few weeks. And today we're going to get into number one. Number one is observation. So observation, this is just review still. Sorry, I'll just conclude with this and then we'll jump in. But observation is simply, what does the text say? You know, what what am I reading? What is it? Um, and number two is interpretation. What did it mean to the original author? What did it mean to the original recipient? Um, and then the third step of the inductive Bible study is application. So we go from objectively observing the book and the text saying, what is this? To, okay, what did that mean to the person who wrote it? What did it mean to the person who received it? And then from that we go okay there is a timeless truth here that i can now apply to my life even though i'm not a first century slave you know i'm a 21st century free woman <laughs> you know but what is a timeless truth that can apply to both of us is god still good was god good then is god good now right so we can find a timeless truth to apply so that is what we went over last week and as a quick catch you up to speed Um, and today we're gonna go deep and break down what is observation. Okay, so observation, in the inductive uh, process, the first step is gonna be gathering information. This is what we call observation, Um, and it is the foundation to the entire inductive process. Your interpretations and applications aren't gonna be no better than your observations are. Um, So I I handed out your week two notes, and I'll prompt you and let you know right when I'm going to give you the answer for your notes. Um, And if you feel like you miss anything, feel free to let me know. Wave your hand at me. Whoa, slow down, dude. Chill out, girl. Just let me know, and I will. Okay. So it's really important for us to take our time with the observation step. And in the observation step, we are basically answering four major questions. And this right here is the first four things in your notes. Those first four questions that we want to answer are who? <laughs> it was like magical music. Who? Oh. <laughs> who? Number two is what? So we want to make observations about what. Number three is where? And number four is when. So, um, with who, the question that we're looking for is who are the people mentioned in the text? Oh, sorry, we are not asking the why question. We are not asking why. We will ask why when we get to interpretation. So, there's the first couple of blanks for you. Who, who, what, oh, yeah, who are the people that are mentioned in the text? So we want to identify the main characters, we want to identify other characters, and we want to carefully observe the use of pronouns. So that's the next part. So we are looking for the people mentioned, and we want to identify main characters, others, and pronouns. And sometimes this can be really difficult when we're reading large sections or if we jump in at a a passage that's in the middle of a book, we might struggle to figure out who they're talking about if they're not naming them. So we'll have to just go back a few paragraphs, a few chapters to see who it is. Um, This can be especially difficult in the book of Kings, for example, because in Kings, they simply refer to the Kings as the King of Judah or the King of Israel, which is a location rather than their name. And at times there's even Kings with the same name at the same time. And so you're like, okay, wait, is this the good one or the bad one? (laughs) Yeah, so we just kind of have to go slow with it and really use our context clues there. So with what, with a what question, we want to identify what is happening. What is happening? We want to know what are the issues being addressed? Is there a problem? Are there solutions? What is the author writing about? Is he making an argument for Christ? What are his thought processes? Um, all of that goes behind the what, like what's happening. So our question really is, what is this all about? Like, what is this? What's the main idea? What's happening? And one of the ways we figure that out is by identifying the atmosphere and emotion. So we want to see... Is the author speaking in tones of joy, in tones of anger? Are they full of sorrow? Are they concerned? Like when you read the prophets, for example, the prophets are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, they're grieved by the sin of Israel. Or Paul in Galatians, um, he's a great example. He skips through the customary prayer of Thanksgiving and instead asks in alarm about how could you have deserted Christ you know he experiences very strong emotions when he speaks to the galatians and so we we really want to practice getting into the skin of the author by acknowledging their emotions <laughs> you doing okay over there I'm sorry yeah <laughs> so with what in your notes it's what is happening the question is what is this all about And we want to identify atmosphere and emotion. Okay. So with where... So with where, we want to understand the geography. It's really important in Bible study to recognize where it's happening because sometimes we can get into our head that it's all fictitious and it happened in a mystical land far far away like like Oz the land of Oz or like Middle Earth but and so and so we kind of go like "Mm, yeah it happened like okay but it really happened in a really real place at a really real time and so the location is so important to understand what's going on So for example, it was in Nazareth that Jesus was rejected in Luke 4, and it's important to recognize where it was, because Nazareth was his hometown. It's like, so if you were rejected in the mall versus rejected in your own home, the pain you feel is going to be different based on the location you're in, because it implies something different in each location, right? And so understanding the location can give us greater understanding and begin to unlock the text in a way we didn't. Anticipate even. Um, Another example was when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for forty days. It was a, it was like a throwback to when Israel was in the wilderness for forty years, and there was this like intended um, alignment that was meant to be seen by the reader for us to go. Wait, I know someone else that was in the same wilderness for the same relatively same amount of days, like a symbolic amount of days, and so. When we observe where, so this is in your notes. When we observe where, we want to look for geological places. Geographical, sorry, not geological. (laughs) It's like a study of stones. (laughs) Geographical (laughs) geography, huh? Are you kidding? How did you know how to spell that like that? Okay, that was cute. Good job. So, ge- geographical places, <laughs> local places, and references. So, with geographical places, we're looking to identify names of places like Galilee, Jerusalem, Egypt, places that are named. When we look at local places, they may be unnamed places such as the temple, the synagogue, the well simon's house they might not be like a you know a city but a, a place that is common and familiar to the people in the text and when we look at references we're looking for things like in the desert on the way up the mountain so again it gets even more ambiguous and it's not identifying a specific place because it might be in motion but we want to recognize okay oh they're going somewhere I once heard someone refer to the Gospel of John as um, the 40-pound gospel because everything that took place in the gospel, they were on their way to eat somewhere. <laughs> they are like, they must have gained 40 pounds in that whole book. <laughs> All they were doing was on their way to eat, on their way to eat. <laughs> And so that, that's like a good like, thing to recognize and observe of like, oh, they are always on their way to eat somewhere. I wonder why Luke was always recognizing that. Was Luke just really hungry all the time? <laughs> I don't know, that's a good question. Okay, so with the when question, we are looking for reference to time and sequence. So in your notes, that's time and sequence. And so we wanna understand the order of events or the location of something in a timeline because the, w- the way that it happens is gonna be relative to the text. For example, in Galatians, the Apostle Paul is very clear that it was after three years that he went up to Jerusalem versus later he says it was after 14 years that he returned to see them. Well, a lot can happen in 11 years, right? But if we, if we read the, the same things thinking he was saying it all at once, it's going to make a big difference. Um, Just like how you talk to someone you just meet on the street versus how you talk to your best friend, it's going to be wildly different because of the length of time you've spent with them. So the way Paul talks to some of the new believers that he's only known a couple years, is going to be presented one way versus the way he talks to people he's known for 15 years. It's going to be different. And so it's good for us to recognize that time span and that timeline of what's happening. So we do that through words like during, before, after, while, until, now, since, immediately. You know, words that are gonna help us indicate timing. Um, We also wanna pay attention to verb tenses. Is what he's saying in the present? Is it in the past? Is it in the future? Um, That can be especially important For us, an application Um, like for in the book of Ephesians, when it talks about all the blessings that God pours out on us, they aren't past tense and they aren't future tense. They're present tense. All the blessings that God pours out are for us now. And that matters for us. Right. To know that I don't have to wait until I get to heaven to have the blessing of God's presence with me so that that can change things greatly. Okay, so it is important to go through this process very slowly and with intentionality. Um, In your notes, we say, look, 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 until you see. So it's important to not hurry, but to take our time. In the first reading, it may seem like you're not seeing anything new, or like you're not finding much. But remember that everything else is gonna be built on these observations. And so with each reading, we get more and more. And then in your notes, you cannot properly interpret that which you have not fully examined. You, so you cannot properly interpret that which you have not fully examined. So I'm going to tell you guys a story. Okay. This is a story called The Student, The Fish, and Agassiz. <laughs> it was written in like the 1800s, so bear with me. So this story is not about um, Bible study, but it does illustrate the inductive Bible study method. And so think instead of a fish, a Bible, and instead of the student, um, you know, one of us staring into the Bible, peering into it. OK, so. <laughs> It was more than 15 years ago, from 1874, that I entered the laboratory of Professor Agassiz, and I had told them that I had enrolled my name in the Scientific School of Natural History. He asked me a few questions about my object in coming, my antecedents generally, the mode in which I afterward proposed to use the knowledge I might acquire, and finally, whether I wished to study any special branch. To the latter, I replied that while I wished to be well-grounded in all departments of zoology, I purpose to devote myself specially to insects. When do you wish to begin, he asked. Right now, I replied. This seemed to please him, and with an energetic, very well, he reached from the shelf a huge jar of specimens in yellow alcohol. Here, take this fish, said he, and look at it. We call it a hemulon. By and by, I will ask you what you have seen. And with that, he left me. But in a moment, he returned with explicit instructions as to the care of the object entrusted to me. He said, no man is fit to be a naturalist, said he, who does not know how to take care of specimens. I was to keep the fish before me in a tiny tin tray and occasionally moisten the surface with alcohol from the jar, always taking care to replace the the stopper tightly. Those were not the days of ground glass stoppers and elegantly shaped exhibition jars. All the old students will recall the hue necklace glass bottles with their leaky wax besmeared corks half eaten by insects and begrimed with cellar dust. Entomology was a cleaner science than ichthyology, but the example of the professor who had unhesitatingly plunged to the bottom of the jar to produce the fish was infectious. And though this alcohol had a very ancient and fish-like smell, I really dared not show any aversion within these sacred precincts. I treated the alcohol as though it were pure water. Still, I was conscious of a passing feeling of disappointment. For gazing at a fish did not commend itself to an ardent entomologist. My friends at home, too, were quite annoyed when they discovered that no amount of cologne would drown the perfume, which haunted me like a shadow. In ten minutes, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish, and I started in search of the professor, who had, however, left the museum. When I returned, after lingering over some of the odd animals stored in the upper apartment, my specimen was dry all over. I dashed the fluid over the fish as if to resuscitate it from a fainting fit, and looked with anxiety for a return of the normal, sloppy appearance. This little excitement over nothing was to be done, but returned to a steadfast gaze at my mute companion. Half an hour passed, an hour passed, another hour passed. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it around, I looked it in the face, ghastly. I looked at it from behind, from beneath, above, sideways at three quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. At an early hour, I concluded that lunch was necessary. So, with infinite relief, the fish was carefully replaced in the jar, and for an hour, I was free. On my return, I learned that Professor Agassiz had been at the museum, but had gone and would not be be back for several hours. My fellow students were too busy to be disturbed by continued conversation. Slowly, I drew forth that hideous fish, and as with a feeling of desperation again, I looked at it. I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were forbidden. My two hands, my two eyes... And the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp its teeth were. I began to count the scales in different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last a happy thought struck me. Aha! I will draw the fish. And how with surprise I began to discover new features in the creature. Just then the professor returned. Ah, that is right said he. A pencil is one of the best eyes. I am glad to notice that you too keep your specimen wet and your bottle corked well tell me what is it like he listened attentively to my brief rehearsal of the structure of parts whose name's still unknown to me the fringed gill the arches the movable opera column the pores of the head the fleshy lips the lidless eyes the lateral line the spinous fin the forked tail the compressed and arched body when i had finished he waited as if expecting more and then with an air of disappointment well you have not looked very carefully at all He continued more earnestly. You haven't seen one of the conspicuous features of the animal, which is as plainly before you as the fish itself. Look again. Look again. And he left me to my misery. I was piqued. I was mortified. Still none. (laughs) Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will, and I discovered one new thing after another until I saw just how the professor's criticism had been. The afternoon passed quickly, and when, towards its close, the professor inquired... Well, did you see it yet? No, I replied. I am certain that I do not. But now I see how little I saw before. That is next best, he said earnestly. But I won't hear you now. Put away your fish and go home. Perhaps you'll be ready with a better answer in the morning. I will examine you before you look at the fish. This was disconcerting. Not only must I think of that fish all night long, studying without the object before me, what this unknown but most visible feature must be, but also without reviewing my new discoveries, I must give an exact account of them the very next day? I had a bad memory, so I walked home by the Charles River in a distracted state with my two perplexities. The cordial greeting from the professor the next morning was reassuring. Here was a man who seemed to be quite as anxious as I, that I should see for myself what he saw. "'Do you perhaps mean,' I asked, "'that the fish has symmetrical sides with paired organs?' He is thoroughly pleased, of course, of course, repaid all the wakeful hours of the previous night. After he had discoursed most happily and enthusiastically, as he always did, upon the importance of this point, I ventured to ask what I should do next. Oh, well, look at your fish, (laughs) he said, and he left me again to my own devices. In a little more than an hour, he returned to hear my new catalog. That is good, that is good, he repeated, but that is not all, go on. And so for three long days, he placed that fish before my eyes, forbidding me to look at anything else. I was not to use any artificial aid. Look, 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 he repeated over and over again. This was the best entomological lesson I ever had, a lesson whose influence has extended to the details of every subsequent study, a legacy the professor has left to me, as he has left to many others, of inestimable value, which we could not buy, with which we could not part. A year afterward, some of us were amusing ourselves with chalking outlandish beasts upon the museum blackboard. We drew prancing starfishes, frogs in mortal combat, hydra-headed worms, and stately crawfishes standing on their tails bearing loft umbrellas, and grotesque fish with gaping mouths and staring eyes. The professor came in shortly after and was as amused as any of us at our experiments, and he looked at those fish. Hemulons, every one of them, he said, and it was you, Mr. Smith, who drew them. It was true. To this day, if I attempt to draw a fish, I can draw nothing but hemulons. The fourth day, a second fish of the same group was placed beside the first, and I was bidden to point out the resemblances and the differences between the two. Then another, and another followed, until the entire family lay before me, and a whole legion of jars covered the table and surrounding shelves." The odor had become a pleasant perfume, and even now, the sight of an old six-inch worm-eaten cork brings fragrant memories. <laughs> the whole group of humulans was thus brought in review. And whether engaged upon the dissection of the internal organs, the preparations and examinations of the bony framework, or the description of various parts, Agassiz's training in the method of observing facts and their orderly arrangement was ever accompanied by the urgent exhortation to not simply be content with them. Facts are stupid things, he would say, until they are brought into connection with some general law. At the end of those eight months, it was almost with reluctance that I left these friends and turned to insects. But what I had gained by this outside experience has been of greater value than years of later investigation in my favorite groups. And so now I'm going to show you a video that Alex has cued for us. Okay, so let me check in with you guys. Do you guys need a five-minute break? No? (laughs) Okay, let's go on. No. No, ma'am, I do not. (laughs) Um, So with that, we're going to jump into types of observations because he began to list some. And honestly, like he was saying, the sky's the limit. You could observe anything in the text. I'm going to give you five common um, types of observations Um, And the first one is the basics, which is what we just took notes on on your first page. So the basics are those four W's. It's the who, the what, the where, the when. So the basics is your number one. Um, Number two is going to be the Godhead. So the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. If one of them are speaking or moving Um, that's something that we can make observations about. So that was number two, the Godhead. Number three is connectors. And, okay, I gave you guys a lot of really good resources here to to look at. I'm going to pull out two of them. So one, the landscape paper that says, observation, 30 questions that can be asked. These are things that can help lead you to make observations. Yeah, that's like 30 different uh, additional types of observations you could make on the color coding and Bible marking page. Your color coding and Bible marking page on the back, it says connectors. And that's what I'm referring to here. Um, And connectors are going to be contrast contrast comparison, conditional statements, you know, if, if the author is saying something like, unless you do this, you will blank. That's something to pay attention to. Right. Um, and so we could, we could acknowledge when Paul's writing, if he's speaking strongly to them, giving them ultimatums or conditional statements, like unless you're saved, blah, 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 unless blah, blah, blah. If you do this, then this will happen. That's something you could observe. So those are like connectors, contrast, comparison, conditional statements, um, even cause and effect, like, like he was talking about where we would have reason or purpose or result. So that's just a worksheet that can help you with that. So number one, again, was the basics. Number two is Godhead. Number three connectors. And now number four is repeated words and phrases, Um, That's going to be a big one that will help us identify the main idea of the passage or the book we're reading. So repeated words and phrases. And then your last one is going to be symbolic language. And I gave you a handout for that as well. It's the handout titled Figures of Speech. And this gives you 16 different versions of literary forms. I know it seems like a lot, but it's... Okay, maybe it's just the geeky side of me, but I, like, geeked out when I did this lecture. I was like, holy cannoli. I didn't know there was sarcasm in the Bible. How neat is that? <laughs> there, there's all kinds of stuff. There's, like... Honestly, I think one of my favorites is Totes. It's about halfway down the page, and I feel like this is one of the modern forms of a sense of humor is when people say like they under exaggerate something. And there's a lot of times in the Bible where things get under exaggerated. Um, and specifically in the book of Acts, Luke, when he wrote it, he uses like the under exaggeration (laughs) so much. Like every time you turn around, he's like, oh, it was no small fight. It, 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 it was, you know, no, no small storm. And you're like, just say it was a big storm then <laughs> just say it was a knockdown knock down, drag out fight then. But he's like, well, I mean, it wasn't that bad. It's just, you know, no, no small fight or anything. <laughs> so there's all these different things, um, all these different figures of speech that we can acknowledge in the Bible. Like these are all in there and you can check out all those examples where they are also. That's just a fun thing to give you you know, something more to go deep in as you're reading. You might read and go, oh, wait a minute. I didn't realize that was a metaphor. I thought that was real. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so other forms of symbolic language aside from figures of speech could be Old Testament quotes or quotes from other sources. Um, like Penny last week was talking a lot, lot about the Book of Josephus, um, and the Book of Josephus is quoted throughout the New Testament. Um, and so that would be a symbolic language. Might also be warnings or prophecies or promises, so those are all things that we can observe. Those are just additional things. Um, today, we're mainly going to focus on those those basic things. Um, and now I want to give you um, some ideas of ways that you can color code. You can you can refer to that color coding and Bible marking handout if you would like. Um, it gives you an idea about on the back ways to color. Sorry, it's in black and white. Um. I'm gonna go to my handy-dandy whiteboard and doodle you some highlightings. Anything. There's not gonna be, not gonna be anything that's gonna hold you back at this, honestly. Um, today we're gonna go through Philemon, and we're going to use um, green, red, blue, and purple, which are on the table before you. Um, <coughs> and yeah, yeah. I was gonna say I've got them everywhere. So go ahead and. No, I'm going to give you our step-by-step process, and then we're going to jump into Philemon. So we're just going to go through that next section on your observation process step-by-step in your notes. Um, so here's what, here's what we're literally going to do now. So step one is we're going to read the passage out loud. And the reason we read it out loud is because when we read it silently or to ourselves, we often skip words. We often go through it and we go so quickly that we miss something. So when we read it out loud, we're forced to read every word. Um, And then number two, after we do um, a reading of it, we're gonna do a survey of it. And a survey is simply taking a step back, going, okay, so I just did the big picture. What is going on here? Do I know who wrote it just by reading it? Do I know what the main idea, do I know what the problem is or the solution is? And then step three is we're going to start marking the observations in the text. So in your notes, number one was read the passage out loud. Number two is survey the passage. Sorry, you're on your last page of notes at the very top where it says process step by step. So number one is out loud. And number two is survey. And number three is marking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just to give you like another illustration of what this is going to be like, we're going to start out with like a zoomed out, big picture reading of it. We're going to like take it all in in one sitting, and we're going to be like, "Ooh, that's a lot." Okay, there's there's a lot happening there. But as we read it. A second time, we're gonna zoom in a little and we're gonna go, oh, okay, there's a galaxy here. Oh, there's planets. Oh, there. okay, I'm, I'm beginning to recognize something. Okay, I'm seeing something familiar. And as we read it more and more, we're gonna go, wait, I know that. Okay, okay, wait, I'm getting closer. I'm seeing more details. I'm picking it up. And then we're gonna be zoomed in super close and be like, whoa, there's life here. There is like real specific stuff happening so that when we come back to just looking at it for applicable application purposes in our big picture, we're gonna gonna look at this and we're gonna go, I didn't realize that way out here, this exists, you know? So this, understanding this part helps us see the fullness and the richness in this, right? So I printed out Philemon for you if you don't want to color in your Bible. If you are up for coloring in your Bible, I welcome you to. If you are not, that is quite all right, and that's why I printed out a blank one for you. So if you want to use this, you can. Um, the text is also much larger. If, if you want to doodle on it, you can. So we are just gonna go um, section by section and read it. Can I have maybe four volunteers to read? Okay, you wanna start, you wanna do one through three? Honestly, like, the first couple times I read this, I was like, I don't know what's happening. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I can't even figure this out. Like, I called him onesimus, I think, for the longest time. It just someone was like, it's onesimus. And, and I just hear that voice in my head correcting me all the time. It's onesimus. So that's why it stuck with me. But, <laughs> but it's okay if nothing's jumping out to you right now. Because we're, we're about to walk through it a couple more times so we get more out of it so here's what we're gonna do I'm not entirely sure how to do this with a microphone in my hand but we're gonna go for it okay we are gonna practice marking observations so I want you to grab a green marker pencil crayon something and I'm gonna give you the example first so With your green color pencil, we're going to go through the text and we're going to circle every name, okay? Every name. So, so for example, verse one we'll do together. So, in verse one, I'll wait till everyone has your pencil and you feel good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do. I gave you one. Oh, okay. You have one. So it has a on. Yeah. Oh, okay. Is it in there? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. You poor thing. You're over there trying to circle it on your phone. Mm. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Aw. Okay, so let's look at verse one, and we're going to use green, and we're going to circle the who. So we're looking for who's. So we're going to start it out. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. So, shout out the names. Paul, Paul. Jesus, Timothy. Timothy. You can't, you can. Yes. Mm -hmm. And Philemon. So, you c- Okay, I'm going to tell you another thing that I do. I circle all the pronouns as well. You do not have to do this, but I circle every hour, every my, every I. Yeah. And so for, I'll show you. This is what, what it's going to look like when we're done. It's going to be so colored up. It's going to be so fun. <laughs> In green. Green is going to be who. So if you want to write at the top of your page, green equals who. That will help you later on down the road. So let's let's go through it. Go ahead and go through and go ahead and circle every name that you see. And if you want, you can do pronoun as well. Right, okay. Um, all observation is about what the text says and never what it means. And for our dues for observation, it is to learn and observe. That is our main goal that we want to do in observation is to learn and observe. We want to learn as much about the text as we possibly can. We want to make as many observations as we can, and we want to answer the who, what, where, and when as completely as possible in the observation process. Our don'ts is we don't want to summarize, and we don't want to conclude. So we don't want to summarize the text. We don't want to draw conclusions about the meanings or the significance. We don't want to make unrelated observations just to do something. Um, And we don't want to ask why. Those things come in in interpretation and in application. But in observation, we are strictly observing and learning. We're staring at the fish with just our eyes and its cold dead eyes staring back stare at the fish. Just stare at it, stare at it, stare at it. So next week, we're going to look again. Look, look, look until you see, right? We're going to keep looking at Philemon um, and we're going to make some more observations and I'm going to share some historical background and literary context. So I'll do a lot of talking next week (laughs) about Philemon and about first century slavery and who Onesimus is and what happened in the text so that's what we can look forward to next week let me pray for us and we will bounce jesus thank you so much for your word thank you god that you are a living god and your word is a living word we thank you that we have this opportunity to draw near to you and to learn from you god we thank you that you wrote this word not to us but you wrote it for us you knew that one day we would be reading it God, in that you encapsulated in it messages and timeless truths that are just so important for us today. And so God, as we observe the text and as we dive into Paul's skin and understand why he's writing to Philemon and who Onesimus is and why he cares so much about him, God, would you use this story to teach us more about you and about how you want us to live and walk today? So we thank you, God, for this opportunity, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to continue the great work you've started in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen! Amen. You bet.